This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. The coronavirus now has not only been highlighted by the media, as we know, and you're going to hear about people who are dying or people getting sick and numbers are are being put to people. And now you hear about something in your area and it does bring up an enormous amount of concern and fear. Hi, welcome to EM Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And so, what does the coronavirus, earthquakes, and climate change have in common? Well, with Dr. Howard Conrather and his book, The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters, we're going to get a little bit into why people do what they're doing and why we as emergency managers have some challenges, but we also have answers on how we can get people to prepare for disasters. You know, it's weird because today we see people going to Costco or Target and and Walmart and whatnot and taking all the toilet paper and some things like that, which, you know, if you think about preparedness stuff, it doesn't really make sense, but that's what they're doing. And, you know, we're going to discuss a little bit why people make irrational decisions when it comes to, well, disaster preparedness. Hey, if you'd like to join us for some deeper conversations in the world of emergency management, uh, not necessarily just on the coronavirus stuff, but on on everything else as well, uh, join us over at Facebook at the EM Weekly Group. And uh, I'd love to have you over there and and join the conversation with a lot of great people. Uh, Sometimes we have some fun as well. Well, on to the interview. So, Howard, welcome to EM Weekly. Good to be here. So I, I got to hear a, a little bit about, you know, some of the research you did and, and when you're writing um, the book, The Ostrich Paradox, Why We Underprepare for Disasters um, on the uh, prep talk. And I had to reach out to you and get you on the show because I, I think that's one of the, the biggest, I don't know, the biggest uh, uh, struggles that we have as emergency managers is why do we see our preparedness levels being so low? And we did a study in Orange County a few years ago. Uh, it was about probably six, seven years ago. And uh, it was like somewhere like around 10%. And I really think that number was lower, probably more like around one or two because, uh, you know, they really didn't explain what a 72-hour kit was or, or whatever that means. And so, that you know, it just perplexes me that they live in earthquake country. They, they know there's dangers, but yet they just don't do it. So... Your book was fantastic. I got to read it. It's a very quick read. So for anybody who's out there looking for something to read on the, on the airplane ride, I, I, I highly recommend it. Um, <clears throat> so tell me a little bit about your research and, and how you got where you got. I'll be happy to. First of all, let me make sure everyone knows that this book is a joint book with my uh, uh, co-director of the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Process Center, uh, Robert Meyer. And uh, the, the, the two of us have been interested in how we deal with 
people making decisions with low probability, high consequence events. Uh, my own background is as an economist, but I have often been called an irrational economist, now a behavioral economist, because I, uh, my interest has always been on people, how individuals, how organizations, how governments, and maybe now in the global level, make decisions with respect to some of these events that don't happen very frequently. And so uh, our risk center has been focusing on that for about 35 years, and we focused really uh, at the start on events like natural disasters that have become more frequent now than they were at the time we started. Um, and we were looking at um, why people didn't wear seatbelts when we first began, because that was an issue that, as you were saying, about 10% of the people uh, preparing for earthquakes or buying earthquake insurance, uh, about that same percentage was wearing seatbelts 35 years ago before we had regulations, and uh, we were interested in their, their process. But now we've been really focusing on the events we're going to be talking about today and what the uh, ostrich paradox has been focusing on, uh, events that are really um, much more catastrophic than they have been in the past, more intense, hurricanes and floods being an example, earthquakes certainly, wildfires. And uh, I know you're recording here from California. And so those, those events now are more frequent and more serious and climate change in the background is making things worse. And so the interest that I've had in this personally has been, first of all, to understand how we do make these decisions, and then, as important, how do we actually address them, and can we do a better job in improving the decision-making process, both on the part of the individual homeowner, for example, but also on the part of other stakeholders and interested parties like real estate agents and insurers and uh, and governments at the local level and the state level and certainly and hopefully at the federal level as well. In the book, you, you have a matrix in there, and, and, and you go through basically the fallacies of why people don't or the psychological aspects of why people don't prepare and also like how to, to address those. How did you come up with, with that, uh, that matrix? Well, I will tell you that that really, that the, we, we talk, as you were indicating, with, uh, we have six biases that we talk about in our book. Uh, and we call the book The Ostrich Paradox. If I was going to give a talk where people could respond, I would ask the question, why did we call it The Ostrich Paradox? But since we we, and you know the answers and you've looked at the book. Um, we called it the ostrich paradox because we learned, frankly, on reading about ostriches that ostriches do not bury their heads in the sand as most people think they do. They are very smart. They can um, escape very rapidly if they are faced with a disaster. Uh, they protect their young. They do a lot of preparation beforehand. Uh, we are the ones, all of us, um, myself included at times, I can give you an anecdote total example of, of that, if you'd like, uh, bury our heads in the sand and say things are not going to happen to us. And we can go over that in a few minutes. And what we did was, Bob Meyer and I basically indicated that, look, there are a set of biases we all have. And we talk about six of them in uh, th this book, which is only 100 pages. Uh, we intentionally kept it short and, uh, because we wanted people to read it, and there are a number of stories here that hopefully will make it interesting. And the six biases are myopia, amnesia, optimism, inertia, simplification, and herding. And we can talk a little bit about that at some point or at any point you'd like me to. 
And are, the reason I mention all of these six is they are six biases that have been looked at over the years by psychologists and uh, behavioral economists. And myself, uh, and both Bob Meyer and I have done research on these biases. We've done experiments on some of them. And so they were ones we felt are really, really central to why people don't prepare for disasters. But what we do differently in this book that others have not done as to our knowledge or haven't done uh, in extensively is we say, you're not going to change these biases. We all have them and we have to live with them. But what we can do is we can try to say, let's looking at these biases, are there are there ways that we can get people to pay attention to these events by recognizing them and, and framing and using what is called choice architecture, which is a way of saying, let's use the frame problems in a particular way that people will pay attention and then develop incentives for people to take action now before the next disaster rather than afterwards. And so that's how we basically structured the book. And, and we do talk, uh, as an example, when you mentioned the matrix, we talk about the flooding problem that can come from hurricanes or floods, but it could be earthquakes, it could be wildfires, it could be any uh, hazard, and it could be a chemical accident. It doesn't mm -hmm. matter. There are a variety of these low probability events. And then we say, how do we address that? And then uh, we point out that climate change, or at least in the case of floods and hurricanes, uh, are going to make things worse in the future, and wildfires, for that matter, with droughts as a problem. So with with the low probability, high impact events, or say, say like an earthquake, you know, we have a small earthquake and a bunch of people go out and they'll buy, you know, preparedness kits or they'll go to Costco and, and, and restock up on some water or whatnot. And, and then, you know, then it goes into the, I guess, the amnesia bias, where a couple weeks later, uh, people are forgetting everything that they did or even forget the fact that the earthquake occurred um, and life goes on as usual. What I think is interesting, and I'm going to parallel this a little bit with the coronavirus, um, is that now, today, you're seeing water and canned foods and sanitation items being cleared off the shelves at Costco or Sam's Club and uh, Target and things like this. And you see, you see this uh, rush on these items. What makes people in the heat of an event kind of do, I would say, you know, irrational purchases compared to instead of just stocking up throughout the year or whatever um, on a regular basis? Why, why do they wait till the event occurs? Well, I think that's a really important question that you're raising, Todd, and, and I think that uh, the coronavirus is an interesting example of differences between people preparing for trying to take preparation for that and the lack of preparation they take for earthquakes and other natural disasters. So it's worth, I think, uh, trying to figure out, well, why is it that we have these two, uh, th th these views? And I think, um, you know, a, a very basic answer or simple answer on that is that it often takes a disaster for people to get to pay attention. So just your point about earthquake is a really interesting one. Very few people were buying earthquake insurance prior to an earthquake occurring. And this goes all the way back to the San Fernando earthquake in the 70s, but then Northridge, of course, coming a much more recently one, recent one. Um, 
And only after that disaster did people actually buy earthquake insurance. And there was a very strong demand for earthquake insurance. In fact, there was such a strong demand after Northridge that the insurer said, uh, we're not going to necessarily continue this on homeowner uh, and e even offer this. And that's why you got the California Earthquake Authority that actually got established because the insurers were concerned that too many people were actually going to buy it. So, But it took that disaster. And what's interesting about that is when we were asking, and we did some research on that, we were asking people about the likelihood of another earthquake occurring in those areas. And almost everyone said it's going to be lower because the fault uh, has been re relieved. And that was interesting just from the point of view of thinking about making that decision. Uh, we say, well, look, if you think the probability is lower and you are now buying it, what's going on? And of course, their response is that I'm concerned. I'm, I'm, I really want to relieve my anxiety. I think maybe I'm focusing on the consequences. They were doing the set of things that they're doing for the coronavirus today. I think the fact that there has been this outbreak, the fact that there has been so little that is known about the virus, so no one is sure how it's go what's going to happen, has caused an enormous amount of fear and anxiety in individuals, and they're taking steps now to try to say, I just got to be prepared, even though the likelihood of anyone getting it at this moment is extraordinarily small. But that doesn't, that isn't what really causes the, the behavior. It's the event itself. And in this case, the event is people learning about people dying in the state of Washington and more outbreaks in California that are getting everyone worried about this. And I understand that. I think it is a natural feeling. And we're all, I think, concerned about it in one way or another. And I can say that that is certainly the case here, even in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, which is where I'm at. I'm at the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. There has been no outbreak to my knowledge of anything here in Philadelphia. But uh, every one of the students now are saying, am I going to go away on spring break? And their concern is not even necessarily getting the, the, uh, the coronavirus, but will they be able to get back to Philadelphia again? Right. Will they be quarantined in some way? So there are a lot of things going on here with this coronavirus that relate very much to what we're talking about, but are exactly the opposite of what people do. Uh, do they don't do that when they when you are talking about preparing for an earthquake and buying an emergency kit, but often after an earthquake. And I'll tell you one little story, uh, a personal one, so people understand I'm not immune to this at all. Many years ago, um, uh, my car uh, uh, wouldn't start and I realized I didn't have battery cables. I hadn't bought battery cables because I said it's not going to happen to me. And of course, the cost of getting towed was a lot more expensive than having those cables. And so this is just one little personal example of saying, you know, I don't want to worry about these things. It's too costly to worry, so I'm not going to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, it's funny that we, we make those weird decisions uh, based upon uh, – you know, just that small cost up front. And I know you talk about that in, in the book um, as well. You know what I find interesting too, and, and back to the earthquake insurance, is the idea that you have of rewarding people for not having to use their policy of, you know, like a $100 gift card or something a year, or something along those lines. And uh, I, I'd love to get, you know, more people to be insured. And the fact that if we could do something like that, uh, I think that would be a, I think that would be an interesting social experiment to see if people would sign up for earthquake insurance to, to get their $100 gift card every year. 
Well, you know, that that is a very uh, this is one of the real challenges that you're bringing up. And you you raise the amnesia bias. And this is a good example with earthquake insurance. People may buy it after an earthquake. uh, But a few years later, if they haven't had any damage, they say, this is, you know, I've put all this money into earthquake insurance and I haven't gotten anything back for it. And I really feel, you know, that's not a good deal that I have here. And to convince people that a very simple phrase, the best return on an insurance policy is no return at all. As you were saying, we should celebrate essentially having uh, not had a disaster. And what we were proposing um, is if uh, if a person actually continued their policy and renewed it the next year and didn't have a loss, they would get maybe, a, if not a gift, a gift card would be one thing, or they could actually get a chit to a restaurant with taking their favorite person out with them to celebrate the fact they haven't had a loss and then continue their earthquake the next insurance the next year. So re- getting something back is, is seems to be very, very important to people. And the only reason I'm giving you that as an example when you raise the gift card thing is that you need to give people some feeling when you give them this back that they should celebrate. That's why having a dinner together or something out uh, is uh, is a way for them to say, gee, we are lucky we didn't have an earthquake and now we can celebrate and look, our insurance company is helping us do that. We bet we're renewing our policy for because we now understand insurance is not an investment. It's a form of protection if I do have a loss and we should celebrate it, not having a loss. Well, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to do like the parallels between the coronavirus and climate change. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed Mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from that quick break. And uh, as we were leaving, I was talking about the parallels between uh, you know, the coronavirus and, and climate change. And the reason why it sounds like a really weird parallel, but Howard and I were talking uh, prior to, to recording here, and we're talking about how people, like we're just talking about going out to Costco, getting everything ready to go for, for uh, the coronavirus, which in the United States, there's a very low chance of getting, uh, getting it right now. But yet... They don't want to talk about or hear or, or discuss anything to deal with climate change, and, and it's very sometimes visceral. So why is that, Howard? Well, uh, as we were talking just before the break, the coronavirus now has not only been highlighted by the media – as we know, and you're going to hear about people who are dying or people getting sick and numbers are, are being put to people. And now you hear about something in your area and it does bring up an enormous amount of concern and fear. And it isn't just on individuals. I can tell you that uh, everything I've been reading now and hearing from others is that businesses are cutting back all of their travel. People are actually being in a position where they said, we're not really sure that we should take this trip. And the reason I think is that everyone is fearful on these two different, on two different levels. The one level is, it, it, can something happen to me or can something happen to my employees? 
Um, I have a, 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 a grandson who is uh, supposed to be taking a trip to Europe with his school, and the school is concerned about the, that trip because of the liability that they may face if it turns out that someone does get sick. And my daughter is very concerned about uh, her son being in Paris, uh, which they, they closed the Louvre and they have canceled the trip. But before that time, she said, well, you know, I, you know it would be okay. if I don't think Rafi is going to get the coronavirus, but he may be quarantined in Paris for the next two or three weeks and never be able to get back. So there's a lot of things going on here. We kidded about that. I said, well, maybe he'll learn French that way, but I'm not sure that's the best way to learn French. Um, but I will say that these are the kinds of things that happen. Now, when it comes to climate change and when it comes to earthquakes and it comes to floods and hurricanes, we really have a very different kind of mindset. There are so many other things we're thinking about all the time, and we don't really feel that we want to start thinking about what is going to happen to us if I have an earthquake. And people in Florida certainly don't want to think about what's going to happen if there's a hurricane when they're trying to enjoy their house in Florida and people in California the same way when there happened to be in, in an earthquake prone area and they say, I really have a great house. So there's that element, I think, associated with it. And I think that what and so what there's a tendency to do, and this is part of what we call the simplification bias, is a tendency to say the likelihood of that happening next year is so very low that I'm not going to think about it. Now, they don't think about the likelihood of a coronavirus and a, a corona, an illness from coronavirus because they're focusing on the consequences. They're not focusing on the probability because they hear of those cases, which is why people buy earthquake insurance after the disaster rather than before. And so just to highlight how we would want to deal with that in our in the suggestion that we, we suggest a behavioral risk audit to deal with these biases, we have done experiments where instead of saying to an individual, there's a one in a hundred chance of a flood occurring next year or an earthquake occurring next year, we say, you know, there's a greater than one in five chance of having at least one flood or at least one earthquake over the next 25 years. And when you tell people one in five, which is they, they get people get concerned. They say, well, maybe I better think about that. Well, that happens to be exactly the same probability. If uh, it's a 0 0.22, a little between one and five and one and four, that you'll get that, that uh, earthquake or flood. Um, if it's equally likely to happen any year and you could have more than one in that period and they get people and people then pay attention. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to develop strategies like that one that will actually get people not only to pay attention, but then maybe to take some steps to protect themselves. Yeah, I think that we have mislabeled some of these storms that come across like the 100 year storms and like, you know, Texas says, oh, well, we had three 100 year storms within within, within three years. I think that really confuses people as well. So, I think you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. One in a hundred is a hundred year storm. Then they'll say, I've had my hundred year storm. I'm not going to have one for the next 99 years. How do these biases impact the social um, aspect of disaster? Well, let, let me give you one of the biases that's probably the most prominent one that we've actually alluded to here, and that's the myopia bias. Now, the myopia bias is really has a very, very strong social impact in the following sense, that if you can make your house safer, 
next uh, against an earthquake. Let's focus on an earthquake. It would be any any uh, any disaster or any action that a firm could take to make its facility safer. There's a tendency to say, I don't want to incur the upfront cost. Maybe it cost me a few thousand dollars to do this. And I'm not sure that I am going to actually benefit from that next year or the year after. So there's a tendency to want to make sure you get something back over the next year or two. Now, when you don't take those measures to prepare, it means your house is unprotected and your facilities are unprotected. And it means you'll have a, a, a fairly severe disaster. Uh, and when you have one, then everyone, then ev that you suffer because you have had a loss. Taxpayers suffer because they have to provide disaster relief. The community suffers because of the fact that there are, you know, everyone is now maybe even having to, many of them having to leave their house. And it is a major problem. We can take the wildfire problem, which is a major problem in California, as we all, as you know better than I do, but I've certainly focused on it and read about it. And here is a good another good example that if you could get everyone in the in their community to deal with their vegetation and deal with the things, that may be a, a a possibility that 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 you really would reduce the likelihood of a very severe fire happening in that that community. It still could occur. We know that, like Paradise, had a a, a wildfire that may have been may not have been able to be prevented, but there are a lot of ones that could have been prevented. But the problem is even worse on the wildfire problem, because if you do it and your neighbor doesn't do it, then you may have protected your yard and house, but the neighbor may not. And then it could spread from the neighbor's house. The fire could spread from the neighbor's house to the others. And that's a, another social problem where you really need better building codes and you need maybe community action taken and other things. So it's a very complicated challenge, Todd. But the main point I want to highlight with what I'm saying is if you don't prepare beforehand, there is a lot, you, you will suffer afterwards in ways that you really wished you had prepared, but so will society suffer because of the fact that there's going to be an awful lot of people who are going to be hurt by this. And again, coming back to the coronavirus, we are all suffering, going to suffer by lack of, of preparation. Even now, today, it's, we, 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 we've taken, we are only starting to take some steps right now. And as a result, the impacts can be in, maybe a lot stronger than had we done preparation beforehand. How can emergency managers use your book? Well, I, that's a question we, I, I, we've talked with emergency managers, and I think the way that emergency managers could use the book, Todd, was to recognize if they agree with what I'm saying and what Bob Meyer and I are saying, that we have these biases we got to figure out a way to deal with them. And it isn't just one of them. You have to work with all of them. And so let me give the example with myopia. Uh, emergency managers would think of working with a lot of others, say, let's get long-term loans that we can give to people so that they benefit immediately from taking preparedness action because they get a, a, a nice premium reduction on their insurance by protecting themselves, which is lower claims for the insurance company. And the cost of the loan is less than the um, reduction in the insurance premium, and they benefit every year. So that deals with myopia in a very specific way. Um, with respect to amnesia, we just talked about the idea of rebates on a policy or multi-year policy, so they could think about that. 
I think the the the, the areas that are probably most important would be to tell you look at the simplification bias and tell people on this is with natural disasters, not with the coronavirus, which is already doing what I'm going to suggest. Tell people what could happen to them if they aren't protected and give them worst case scenarios and stories of what people who have suffered. And I think if they do that, they will get people to really pay attention because they are in a, in a, in a position where they can think about that. And with climate change, what's going to happen to your children and your grandchildren? So ways of stretching time horizons by doing what I just suggested or telling stories that are accurate stories of what could happen. And finally, I think herding bias is the most challenging one we see, and their emergency managers could, I think, play a really important role. The herding bias means, well, my neighbor isn't doing it. My friends aren't doing it. Why should I do it? And the, and they don't know anything more or less than we do. They're just not doing it, so no one does it. And I think the way we would suggest that we think about the herding bias is to sort of say, let's get seals of approval on houses that are well-developed and give people seals of approval. That'll let others know that something has been done. It'll improve their property values, and it will also get everyone to prepare. So those are some ideas on what one could do. Emergency managers play a key role with the real estate agents, with the banks and financial institutions, with a lot of other players. You know, I love the the fact that in the book you go through the, uh, the math on uh, – I'm taking that loan out to to harden your facility, for lack of a better term, and uh, you actually end up saving uh, money than spending money. It makes a lot of sense when you look at it on paper. Well, that's why we we, we try to use a simple example like that uh, to highlight the fact that, you know, if you're paying, I think the example we had was if you're paying $1,500 to make your house safer, you have a 20-year loan, Tied to your mortgage, that's a way to do it. You'll you'll pay $145, but you may be able to save a uh, $27,500 with a one in a, a flood that has a one in a hundred year chance. And if the premiums are reflecting risk, you'll save $275 each year and only pay 145. So we try in some way to say, look, there are some things that can be done. They have to be done by various parties, and the real estate agent could could actually hopefully suggest that this is a good thing to do. And on new houses, it's a definite thing that they can do. If you could say one thing to all the emergency managers in the world, what would it be? Think long term. That's the one thing I would say. And then figure out how you can get people to think and all the organizations to think long term. Overcome the myopia bias and all the other biases. And then give people accurate information along with thinking long term so that they understand what the hazard is. And people often don't understand it. And so that would be what I would suggest. Well, Howard, thank you so much for coming on the show. I don't let everybody know. Look, go to Amazon, get the book. It's 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 a great book to have. Um, yeah, I would see if you could buy multiple gifts and, or books and give them out as gifts because I think it's I think everybody needs to to really get into this. It's easy. When I say easy read. It's it's not wonky by any means like the most of our books that, as emergency managers that we tend to get into. And I think that the uh, the residents in your uh, in your neighborhood would uh, in your community would really benefit from reading it as well. So Howard, thank you so much for your time today, and uh, I'd love to do it sometime again. 
Thank you very much, Todd. I enjoyed our conversation. And let me add one little point to this, and people will find out if they do go to Amazon, it's not a very expensive book. So financial constraints hopefully will not prevent you from possibly getting it. Thank you for listening to EM Weekly. And don't forget to subscribe to EM Weekly on your favorite podcast player. And if you are interested in more podcasts, also check out sitchradio.com, the home of EM Weekly.